So I absolutely love this graphic that uh, Jason and, and Mike created here. It feels like you're stepping up into this whole different world. And it's perfect for this series because our culture is so surreal these days. We're in this um, series where we're talking about reconciliation. And there are times you just step back and you go, what just happened there? How did that escalate so fast? How did this thing turn into such a thing? Well, our culture has been trending towards crazy for quite some time. I did a little research this week and I found out that in 1968, a doctor named Stephen Cartman wrote an article. The article was called Fairy Tales and Script Drama Analysis. In the article, uh, this doctor, he, he said that people are acting like they're in a fairy tale where everything is just simple. And he developed this thing that we now call the Cartman Drama Triangle. And it's like this. This is how a lot of people see the world. They see the world as there's villains, there's victims, and there's rescuers. And if you don't agree with me, you're one of these two people, right? So I updated this triangle to reflect kind of how I see things in our, our culture. Real similar here. This is when it comes to issues and problems, often isn't this the case? People are like, I'm right, they're wrong. Which side are you on? You must have this experience on things. You can't have a conversation because it's I'm right, they're wrong. Which side are you on? It's absolutely crazy. It's absolutely surreal. If this is how you see the world, what is the likelihood of bridges being built? Like zero, right? Well, this series, what we're trying to do here is do the best we can with the time we have to cast a vision for a very different kind of community. What we're doing the best we can is to, to offer a biblical principles and practical skills that can help us become better bridge builders. Well, today's focus in the series is on religion. On religion. Let's get started. Dive right in. If you have your notes, I encourage you to write this down. Religion is inherently divisive. Religion is inherently divisive. Religion, by its very nature, is divisive. Why? Because religion is a defined set of values and behaviors. That's what it is. That's what religion does. When you practice a specific religion, regardless of what that religion is, you work within certain boundaries for beliefs and behaviors. And people disagree about where those should be set. Now, even if you don't consider yourself a religious person, religious, religion's going to come up in conversations, isn't it? It's going to happen. Religion's going to come up in conversations. And what we're trying to do this morning is talk about how we can have more helpful and productive conversations than I'm right, they're wrong, whose side do you want? Here's one of the reasons this matters. I came across this quote while I was preparing this week. This is, uh, in this great book called Crucial Conversations, they write this, 20 years of research involving more than 100,000 people reveals that the key skill, not a key skill, the key skill of effective leaders and teammates and parents and loved ones is the capacity to skillfully address emotionally and politically risky issues, period. With a show of hands, how many of you would like to be a more effective leader or teammate or parent or loved one? All right, right? This matters. 
Learning how to skillfully navigate these kind of conversations matters. They would say after 100,000 people surveyed, this is the key skill. Conversations that involve religion can be about as emotionally and politically risky as they come. And while there's nothing that I can say that's going to guarantee that you're going to have a good conversation, there are definitely principles and skills that help. And that can make things better, hopefully instead of worse. All right, let's make this, let's make this a community of believers where it's safe to ask questions and share perspectives and give feedback. Let's make this a healthy place where we don't care about defending positions. We want to pursue truth. We want to have the best ideas come forth. Let's develop God-honoring, biblically sound processes designed to help us learn and grow and make really good decisions together. Wouldn't it be great? We could become this oasis of sanity in the midst of a desert of crazy. Wouldn't that just be great? Amen. That's what we're shooting for. Well, our jumping off point for this series are two real first century letters written to Christians living in a city called Corinth. Corinth was a major urban center. It was one of the most culturally and religiously diverse cities in the entire Roman Empire. It was an exciting, world-class city. And Corinth was also a key stop on the, on the circuit for people who made a living by public speaking. Back in the days before TED Talks and YouTubers and keynotes and bestsellers and news feeds, they had these traveling speakers. And they were all of that rolled into one. They'd roll into town and they'd set up shop and they would share these ideas. And people would be entertained and they'd have something to think about. And in a city like Corinth, where social status mattered a lot, Corinthians were constantly jumping on the bandwagon of these new thoughts and these new teachings. And the young church in Corinth was wrestling with a lot of issues and a lot of questions. And there was a lot of confusion about where their boundaries for beliefs and behaviors for this new religion called Christianity should be. And these people would come in and they'd share these ideas and they'd get more confused. As is often the case when there's a lot of issues and a lot of questions and a lot of confusion, people began taking sides. People began to see the world like this. I'm right, they're wrong. Whose side are you on? A strong case can be made that the unifying theme of Paul's letters to the Corinthians was a call for unity. Unity in the midst of this. The primary emphasis, especially 1 Corinthians, is how do we get along as a family? As a family. In the ESV translation, Paul uses the term brother four dozen times in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Four dozen dozen times. It's brothers, brothers, brothers and sisters, brothers. He said, we're a family. How do we get along in this world? Paul wants this young, growing, blended family that was brought together by Christ to be able to figure some things out. But Paul doesn't just use terms that are related to family. He also challenges his Christian brothers and sisters to see themselves as ambassadors too ambassadors. This isn't only about clarifying family expectations. It's about learning to be better neighbors to those who have very different religious boundaries. Well, Paul makes it clear right from the start that, fo- that Christianity is about following Christ. 
And we looked at this at the opening of this series. We looked at the, how the first Corinthians opens. So here's verses one through three. Look at the Christ count. Three verses. How many Christs do we have? Four. Boom, boom, boom. Christ, 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 Christ. Let's go to the next few verses. Christ, 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 Christ. I think Paul's trying to make a point here. But what this letter is about, more than anything else, Paul wants to help the recipients of this letter experience a life, experience a community that is truly, authentically Christ-centered. How do we become a family? Like the one that Caitlin described a couple weeks ago. I love that image, that word picture that she created there of a table. The kind of table that if you were walking by, walking your dog, and you saw this, lit, this dining room table, a table where these, these families are laughing and there's joy. And when there's discussions, when something hard comes up, it's not you, you're, you know, kind of thing going on. That they're actually listening to one another. In fact, if anything, when those moments come up, the attention is there, they're focused, they're, they're listening, they're trying to understand, they're asking questions, they're praying together, they're trying to work things out instead of escalating things. Isn't that the kind of family we want to be a part of? And isn't that the kind of family that your neighbors might say, you know, maybe there's something to that table. Well, let's see what we can learn from this letter. This, this letter. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses, uh, we're going to look at verses 10 through 17 here to start. I want to let you know too, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. It contains these letters and a whole lot of other great first, uh, early documents. Uh, we have a stack of them there at that table in the back. We encourage you to take one home with you. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And this comes right after his opening. This is the first thing he really launches into after saying, Christ, 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 Christ. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, oh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, oh, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of y'all, well, except for those two guys, that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, yeah, 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 I did baptize that other guy too, but we are getting off point. Don't send me emails about this. The point is this. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of his power. All these divisions were popping up right away in this church that Paul himself had founded and was working with. How do we keep from falling into these same patterns that have been repeated in every generation on every continent? These patterns where we start to divide into groups that see each other, see the other groups as enemies to defeat. I want to encourage you to write these three words down in your notes here. When pride and preferences aren't processed well, religion results in endless arguments. Can I get an amen to that? There's going to be pride. There's going to be preferences. If we don't know how to process them well, we're just going to argue about everything all the time. Let's uh, quickly look at each of these highlighted words, beginning with pride. One of the most frequently quoted passages that I bring up 
comes from 1 Corinthians. It comes from this letter. You can find it in chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, where Paul writes this. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. This, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If we can leave this up for just a minute again, I want to show you something here. In the original Greek, the phrase translated here as food offered to an idol, it's just one word. That was happening so often. People were offering up food to idols. It was happening so often they had a word for it in Corinth. And if we have time, I want to get into that a little bit more next week when we talk about class and communion. Because what was going on in Corinthian temples was very, very different than where our boundaries are set as followers of Jesus. So here's what I want to point out. The problem they faced. Take a look at this, the quotes on the screen. Here's one of the problems they faced in dealing with issues like food, sacrifice to idols. You'll find quotation marks in a number of your study Bibles in the same place. They're there to indicate a saying that was popular in Corinth. And that saying was, all of us possess knowledge. Evidently, one of those you know, celebrity preachers came through and you all have your knowledge, right? And Paul was not a fan of how they were using that catchphrase. In fact, he warns them. He says there is the kind of knowledge like that that puffs up instead of building with a show of hands, how many of you have met religious people in our time who are convinced they have just about everything figured out? Right? Does that kind of knowledge build up or does it just puff them up? You know, if we're going to move beyond endless arguments, we've got to find ways of recognizing and then processing pride, including our own, including our own. And the same is true for preferences. We all have different preferences when it comes to the way we like things to be as we practice our religion. Some of these things were, you know, are more than preferences, but there's these preferences too. You know, music and messages and carpet color. I, I, one of my things I'm so thankful about being in this facility is don't talk to us about the carpet color. You know, it wasn't hard, is it, Right. Am I making it? Have you ever been in a church? Carpet color. It becomes an issue. Yes. Yes. I know. I know. If a community of faith is going to function like a healthy family, we've got to move beyond endless arguments. And we have to be able to do two things well when it comes to preferences. We have to have a way where voices can be heard. And we have to have a way to make decisions and keep moving forward, right? We have to figure out how to deal with those preferences. Well, here's the target that Paul points us towards. There's a place to write this in your notes too. How do we pursue unity in Christ responsibly? That's our target. Unity, but unity in Christ. How do we avoid the extremes of either unnecessary arguments and divisions, which reflect a failure to maintain unity, or how do we make sure, or and how do we make sure that we don't cross boundaries for beliefs or behaviors that God put in place? which reflects a failure to abide in Christ. It's both. And that sure sounds a lot easier than it is. Trying to pursue unity in Christ responsibly is really hard work. It's really messy work. And to that end, may I humbly offer two biblical principles and four practical skills. Let's start with the principles. Principle number one. 
Biblical principle number one, sound doctrine. And I know that's the D word. And I'm old-fashioned and all that kind of stuff. And that's unfortunate that so many people frame things that way. Because sound doctrine, it just means right thinking. It means accurate teaching. What's the alternative? Incorrect thinking, bad teaching. Now, where those boundaries are, that's the hard work, right? But the principle of sound doctrine, you're going to see Jesus talking that. You're going to see Paul talking that. In Corinth, as in the case of our culture, there's a lot of celebrity preachers. There were a lot of celebrity preachers with a lot of competing voices. And one of the things that makes discerning doctrine so challenging was the fact that some of the best presenters make things sound right that aren't right. That's why it's so important to to press in and ask questions like, where is it written in the scriptures? If we're going to be faithful to authentically Christian beliefs, we have to ask that question, where is it written? And if we're going to be faithful to authentically Christian behaviors, we have to ask the question, how goes your walk? And that brings us to the next principle, God-honoring decisions. The two principles that guide all of what we're going to say, sound doctrine, God-honoring decisions. These two principles are like two sides of a coin. There's no such thing as a one-sided coin. And you can't have authentic faith about corresponding actions. So those are the guiding principles. How do we get sound doctrine? How do we make God-honoring decisions? Well, as we've already mentioned, applying these, mentioned, applying these principles, it's hard work. It is messy work. But the good news, God is with us in this. God is with us in this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9-10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Did Paul work hard? Yes. Was it all about Paul? No. These two things are indivisible, right? Our hard work and God working in and through us. As Paul was working, God was working in and through him. And this is one of the reasons why we've been stressing so much throughout this series, the importance of prayer and fasting. Because if we're leaving the God peace out, good luck with reconciliation. Good luck with it. All right, those are the two principles. Now let's talk about four practical bridge-building tools that will help us apply these principles. So here's how we do this, as, as, as I would offer to you. Number one is not going to come as a surprise if you're around from around here. Number one, anchor to what? Scripture. Anchor to Scripture. And what I want to challenge us to do is to anchor to Scripture and not what people say about Scripture. In fact, that's one of the reasons I'm putting this on here is because often in religious discussions, we anchor to what people say about Scripture rather than to the actual Scriptures and actually going to them and discussing what they actually say and look at them in context. As I mentioned earlier, one of the issues in Corinth was the fact that there were a whole lot of celebrity preachers and teachers. They sounded right, but they weren't aligned with the example and teachings of Christ. And we see this all the time in our culture too. Right around the time that we started this series, two Christian organizations opted to go to war over the movie Captain Marvel. Of all the things to choose to go to war over, Captain Marvel. 
One of the organizations made some really hard-to-defend statements about how Captain Marvel was distorting biblical understandings of male and female distinctiveness. So that was side A. And in reply, a spokesperson from side B said this, and this is a direct quote, Contrary to popular belief, the Bible actually sends women out fighting a number of times. There is the prophet Deborah in Judges 4, who was so fierce, her commander refused to go into combat without her. Study the Bible a lot of years, and I am struggling to think of those times when the Bible, countless times or whatever he says here, where women were sent out into battle. And if you look up the example that he himself gives, that is a misrepresentation of why Deborah was honored and revered the way she was. Now, my point is not to side with side A, because I actually leaned more towards where he was going with side B. My point is this, anchor to Scripture. What this individual just did now is he just opened himself up to all kinds of bad stuff. Because now instead of actually discussing the issue, now it's, see, you're one of those people who misrepresents scripture, blah, 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 blah. So now this thing even escalates more instead of going to the word and seeing what it actually says. Number two, if we're going to pursue unity in Christ, in addition to anchoring to scripture, we must also do this, identify reconciliation pathways. I can't stress this enough pathways. And the time to have those pathways, don't start creating them when there's conflict. You want to have them in place before so that when the disagreements come, here's how we process these. Here's how we handle these. Here's how we resolve our differences. This is huge. We will disagree on things. Here are two of my favorite quotes that speak to that. One is this, you can divide the world into two. Those who think there are two types of people and those who disagree. Isn't that true? The second one's from the book of Proverbs. I love this one too. The one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. Without a clear process for working out disagreements, spiritualized dysfunction is guaranteed. Here's an example. In fact, you, sometimes you, you have these things happen to you and you go, it must be just me. And then you see stuff. You're actually writing about this stuff. This is how common it is. This person uh, in this book I read described the forgiveness ambush, he called it. A forgiveness ambush does not build community. This is narcissism. And sometimes it is malicious, a way to attack someone under the guise of reconciliation. The individual asking for forgiveness should have made her confession privately. And even then, there's a danger that it's still more about her need to unload some emotional baggage than it is about strengthening a relationship. My friend Andrew calls this a forgiveness ambush. person calls you up for coffee, midway through the latte, announces that he or she has something they feel led to discuss. Once again, this isn't about, or this is all about, a person's hurt or pain that you unknowingly have caused. But I want you to know I've forgiven you, the person says. This is not genuine reconciliation. This is showy forgiveness, making light of the true act of reconciliation. Reconciliation is not unloading. Here, I'm right, you're wrong. It's hard and messy work. And it was interesting to look through Corinthians and, and how many things Paul includes along the way of just how much care and how much hard work he's trying to put into. Here, you guys, here's this living and working together as brothers and sisters. It's tough. Look at some things Paul says. He's like, process matters. 
Paul started with milk before moving to solid food. Paul laid a foundation like a master builder, he says. Paul reminds us the quality of our work will be revealed by fire. If a prophetic word is given, he says, others should weigh in. All things, he said, should be done decently in order. And there are times, there are things that are going to merit disassociation. There are times we have to go our separate ways. We're going to disagree. And it's important to identify what are those pathways that we're going to use when we do so we can navigate those disagreements in a God-honoring way. All right, number three. Number three. Oh, so important. Listen to what? Listen to learn. Listen to learn. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says we have the mind of Christ. It was fascinating. I was reading 1 Corinthians again from in one sitting, and, and I could, I'd never seen this before, that chapter 2 where it talks about we have the mind of Christ, I think is really related to chapter 12 where it says we're the body of Christ. And just as we're more complete together as the body of Christ, isn't it also true that when we bring our perspectives together and go to the word, that we have a more complete mind of Christ? Isn't that also true in how things work? We learn more when we listen to one another. Now, to be clear, I'm not advocating for moral relativism. Buck Hill in Burnsville is smaller than Mount Everest, even if you don't believe it is. Sorry to break that to you, right? There are some things that are just true and some things that aren't true. I'm not saying that all perspectives are equally valid. What I am saying, though, is that when we listen to one another, some good things can happen. Here's three. One, we can gain perspective that we wouldn't have otherwise had. Another good thing, we might see something that we might have otherwise missed. Here's another. When someone's been heard, they're more likely to what? To listen. Good things can happen if we listen to learn and not listen to say, I'm waiting my turn. I'm going to, ooh. You know, or you said this, ooh, and I'm ready to pounce on that. When we listen to learn, who would you rather have a conversation with, a spiritual bully or someone who's following the example that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13? He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And I want to tell you, too, this is a great place to listen and learn from one another. We have people coming from so many backgrounds, Lutheran backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, Methodist backgrounds, Baptist backgrounds, charismatic backgrounds, and more. We have seminary professors, missionaries, counselors, people who've been teaching the Bible for years. And those of us who've been studying the Bible for years, don't we have so much to learn from people who are seeing it new for the first time with fresh eyes? Young people see things that older people miss and vice versa. Women often see things that men miss and vice versa. Those who aren't in leadership see things that people in leadership miss and vice versa. Do we have a lot to learn from each other? Absolutely. Well, I had an aha moment this week because I was reflecting on all of this. And it's been especially vivid in the last couple of days. I sit around a lot of tables with a lot of people, different groups throughout a, any given month. And the best discussions at those tables happen when we're applying these principles. When instead of just talking about what people say about the scriptures, actually going to the scriptures. When we make sure that we have processes in place and we stick with those processes. 
for resolving our conflicts. And when we really listen to one another, listen to learn. And here's the other thing that's so important when we get around those tables. One of the things that makes this work is this. Stay on the solution side. Stay on the solution side. If we don't apply this one, if we don't apply this one, it's like you're sitting at a table and there's one leg missing. And that table's all wobbly because something that should be there isn't there. And, and what you end up doing is you start yelling at one another, quit shaking the table! Instead of saying, how about we fix the table? That happens, doesn't it? We get off the solution side because we see the problem as the other person. And best practices, you read almost all these best practices, resources, and they'll point you to taking that problem and not making it embodied in a person. But putting the problem out there, working together and trying to fix the problem or discuss the issue. Our conversations go so much better when we remember this. Max Cato frames it up like this. He says, when fishermen don't fish, they fight. Can I get an amen? Amen. Well, if this is how we see the world, if this is how we see the world, if we see the other person as the problem, that's going to be problematic. One of the keys to reconciliation is identify the real issues, the real problems, identify what they are, put the issue out there, and work on it together. And I believe Paul points us to this. I believe it is by design that after he presents everything he presents at the very end of his letter, he says this, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, right near the end. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. And then he says, abounding in the what? Work of the Lord. Abounding in the work of the Lord. You're not just talking about stuff. You're abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that you're in the Lord, your labor's not in vain. I believe that was by design that he put that towards the end. I also believe it was by design that right after that, right after that, Paul instructs them to take up a collection. He says there are brothers in Jerusalem right now, brothers and sisters, they are struggling. They are in a bad way. Let's rally around this cause. Let's give generously to them. I believe that was by design, getting them focused on a, something they can do together, a causing it behind. I also believe it was by design right after that where he name drops Apollos, who is one of the names they were dropping as a source of division. And he says, we're on the same team. We've been talking and we're hoping that he's going to be able to come back to see you guys. There's a sense of urgency in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We live in a broken world. And our time is short. Let's not waste it in endless debates about abstract concepts or add to the family drama through our own personal critiques and cynicism and criticism. Let's gather around tables for one, just to strengthen our bonds. Good things happen when you can gather around a table, right? But also, let's gather around these tables and fix stuff. Fix stuff that's broken. Paul's letters to the Corinthians, they don't say a lot about how do you have a productive conversation with people who are in different religions. I think he gives us something better. As he's spending this, these extended letters talking to his people, he doesn't say, you know, you know, really spell out a lot about how do you have those good conversations with people outside the faith. I think he gives us something better. And that's important. In fact, he says those who are practicing different religions, 
basically good luck convincing them. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. Folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here's why what he does say is so helpful when it comes to opening up great conversations with our neighbors. If we're just another religious group, and we're trying to convince other people that our boundaries for belief and our boundaries for behaviors are better than yours, especially when we're talking about a crucified Savior, that's going to be a stumbling block to some. It's going to be foolishness to others, right? But what if? What if when they look at how we treat one another, when we gather around our tables, what if they don't see this among us? If you think this diagram is amazing, just get ready for this one that I drew myself. I'm going to take full credit for this. My pride is just going to come out. Look at that. Huh? Pretty amazing. What if, you guys? We're going to have our differences. What if we're coming together and we're looking to Christ for solutions? And I don't say that simplistically because this is hard and messy work. But what if we made a decision we're going to engage in that hard and messy work? for the sake of our church family, for the sake of the world. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about this, you guys, is because this makes a difference. We're seeing the fruit of it here. You know, we are doing the best we can to practice these things. We meet as elders, as we meet the PRC. We meet with our pastors and directors, the teaching team. When you compare where we are now, where we were four years ago, even two years ago, it's night and day. These principles make a difference. What I want to do at this time is invite Jason to come up. And we're going to close a little different this morning because I think it's going to be so important for us to not leave here without thinking how we could apply these principles. This matters. And so he's going to play an instrumental. And when he's doing that, I want to encourage you to, to consider which of those four legs of the table are, are you the shortest on, you know? Are you anchoring truly to Scripture or what people say about Scripture when you're having these conversations? Are you really going to the Scriptures and saying, let's talk about it. let's look at what it actually says? You know, are, do you have processes that are in place so when you have disagreements, you say, okay, here's, here's how we've agreed that we're going to try to solve this together. Are you really listening to learn or are you just trying to unload on people? And then this other one, are you, are you staying on the solution side? Are you really trying to fix things or just prove you're right? So as he's playing this music, we wrote this down in the bottom of your notes. Be thinking about are there, which of the skills would the Lord bring to mind if this is something I want to come away from with a greater commitment to doing a good job of and working on? And then also, are there any people that you should say you're sorry to? Is the Lord going to bring to mind any people where you've been engaged in just unhealthy discussions where you could perhaps start to build a bridge by saying, I'm sorry. As we do this, as we invite the Holy Spirit to come, it is such a game changer. And again, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about us praying about this, fasting about this, is because it makes a difference. On Friday night, I was watching a movie with Laura, and my phone rang. 
And I was surprised by the number that was on there. And I got on the phone. And long story short, a relationship in my life that's been broken for 18 years. I haven't spoken to this person in 18 years. We were on the phone praying together. And we set a date to sit around a table and begin to build what was broken. The Lord did that. And he can do that in our life too. With God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that this would become a sacred moment as we engage in the sacred work. The work of coming to you, putting our attention to you, laying down what we maybe feel as our rights and just coming humbly before you to say, Lord, examine us. Help us to see where we're deficient in our skills and what you'd have us do about that. And if there's any names of any people that you would have us say, we're sorry to, would you bless us with those thoughts in Jesus' name?